I'm Derek Thompson, longtime writer with The Atlantic Magazine on tech, culture, and politics. There is a lot of noise out there, and my goal is to cut through the headlines, loud tweets, and hot takes in my new podcast, Plain English. I'll talk to some of the smartest people I know to give you clear viewpoints and memorable takeaways. Plain English starts November 16th. Listen for free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in DC and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com, Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. We're going to chat with Connor Ryan from Boston.com and the Boston Globe in just a little bit. We'll get into the bees with Connor as they have a little mini break here. Of course, played on Sunday night and they won't play again until Thursday night. So we'll check in on the bees with Connor. And then my buddy Andrew Filipponi from the fan in Pittsburgh is going to join us as well. Pony covers the Steelers. And the main reason I wanted to have Pony on was because right now this looks like a winnable game for the Patriots because... Mitchell Trubisky is starting at quarterback on Thursday night. You know me, I do not want the Patriots to win any more football games. So hopefully Pony tells us that the Steelers are going to win this thing. But I'm a little bit worried because you want to stay in that top two in terms of your draft selection right now if you are the Patriots. So before we get into that, though, big news on Tuesday night as we're recording this part of the pod The Alex Verdugo era, I don't even think you can call it an era, but Alex Verdugo done as a Boston Red Sox. He was traded to the New York Yankees on Tuesday night. So a couple of things here before I get into the return on Verdugo. Just remember this, Verdugo was entering the final year of his contract arbitration, if you will. The Red Sox were never going to sign him long term. There was issues, of course, with his work ethic in the past. And quite frankly, from my perspective, when you look at Verdugo, He's a corner outfielder that does not hit for any power whatsoever. That's not a very valuable player, especially considering the fact that he's coming up on his 28-year-old season. It's not like you see the potential. Yeah, he's got some bat-to-ball skills. Nobody would doubt that. But he's a corner outfielder that doesn't hit for pop. You look at him on the season, 324 on base percentage, 78th of 133 qualifiers. He slugged 421, which was 82nd. The OPS was 86th at 745. The isolated power, it's basically just, it's a good metric for measuring power. You subtract the slugging percentage from the batting average. It's 158, which is 92nd. 
one of the things that always irks you about Verdugo, more on this in a second, he always hits balls into the ground, right? The launch angle is 8.8 degrees, 113th. 13 home runs this past season, which tied a career high. That's the most home runs he's ever hit in a season is 13 as a corner outfielder. It's just not nearly good enough. And the other flaw with Verdugo's game, I give him credit. He improved his defense this past season, but he also can't hit lefties. A 220 average, 131st of 146 qualifiers, a 311 on base percentage, 109th, a 298 slugging percentage, 144th, and a 609 OPS, 138th. And I know what a lot of you are thinking here is, hey, this was the main piece in the Mookie Betts trade. And Jeter Downs isn't here either. The only remaining piece is Connor Wong. But this is not Craig Breslow's mess. This is Heim Bloom's mess, right, in terms of the return they got for Mookie Betts. And you can throw ownership in the conversation as well when you talk about the mess from trading Mookie Betts. But what Craig Breslow had to do was what's in best interest of the team going forward. You can't think about how this looks because you're not going to sign the player long term. I would have been shocked if Verdugo played for the Red Sox in 2024. It just didn't make any sense. They would have moved him at the trading deadline if there was actually a market for the player. But what's the market? For a guy that doesn't hit any power, he plays a corner outfielder position. He's just not a very intriguing player. And not to mention, he can't hit lefties. He's really more of a platoon player, quite frankly. And this is not me being harsh on Verdugo because the Red Sox have traded him. I've criticized the Red Sox plenty, and I would criticize the Red Sox if I hated this trade, but it was time to move on From Verdugo, not to mention this, too, if you're looking at building the best version of the 2024 Red Sox, we've heard they want to compete this upcoming season. They had too many lefties, right? They need a righty with some pop in the outfield. And look, Verdugo had his moments, but he was a very flawed and inconsistent player. He also, getting back to the launch angle, he refused to elevate the ball. Since 2020, when Verdugo debuted in a Red Sox uniform, 52.2% ground ball rate. That was the 14th highest rate in Major League Baseball during that time. So the swing isn't going to dramatically change. Quite frankly, he doesn't have enough pop overall to hit for real power. So it's not going to change. Like this is not going to be a major loss for the Red Sox going forward, not having a guy like Verdugo. And the other thing I'd say is this, like, yeah, he goes to the Yankees. Who even knows if he stays there? The Yankees are trying to get in the Juan Soto market. So they may look at this and a lot of people have reported this. Maybe they look to move Verdugo in that trade. Now, I don't know why San Diego would want Verdugo. Maybe they say, hey, this is a big league outfielder. And if we're training Soto, we need a big league outfielder. They go for Verdugo. They'll be disappointed with the player. But overall, it was time to move on from Verdugo and the Red Sox do just that. It was going to happen at some point this offseason and they get it done sooner rather than later at the winter meetings. So I would just look at this. They need a righty that can hit for some power in the outfield. You think about a couple of guys that come out that makes sense for this team. Teoscar Hernandez is a free agent. Now, he's not going to hit for average, as we know. He killed the Red Sox as a member of the Blue Jays. Last three seasons, 32 home runs, 25 home runs, and 26 home runs. Well, why is this important? The Red Sox outfielders over the past two seasons, 98 home runs, which was 26th in Major League Baseball. By the way, another guy to look at is a guy that just played in the World Series in Gurriel, who hit 24 bombs this past season and, of course, has familiarity with the division, also played for the Blue Jays, right? And if you look at it, Verdugo, as I mentioned, had a great defensive season, nine defensive runs saved after being a liability to the past couple of seasons. Well, Hernandez, fine defensively still, one defensive run saved last year, but he's going to bring you more from an offensive perspective than Verdugo. Gurriel, 14 defensive runs saved in the outfield in just 778 innings. Verdugo played over 1,100 innings, and Gurriel was at just 778 and had five more defensive runs saved than Alex Verdugo. Gurriel makes a lot of sense. Teoscar Hernandez makes a lot of sense. And of course, when you look at a guy like Abreu, 
he's going to need at-bats. Abreu has a really nice profile, and I know he's a left-handed hitter, but last season, 85 plate appearances at the major league level, 316, 388, 474, 862. And look, I get it, small sample size, but the profile's there. He walks a lot. You look at the numbers last year when he came up. He only swung at 27.1% of pitches out of the strike zone. Only 29 qualified hitters in Major League Baseball were self of that 27.1% number. So I really like the idea of bringing in a guy with some power. And I like the idea of Abreu getting more opportunities because, quite frankly, he's got a high upside with real power. We know who Alex Verdugo is. The other thing you mentioned with Verdugo, he obviously has motivational problems. He's not a self-starter. He needed to be called out by the manager last year. So this day was going to come, and it just so happened to come on Tuesday night. As I mentioned, I'd rather get this over sooner rather than later. You think about what's coming back for the Red Sox? Some intriguing arms. They picked up three right-handed arms. Now, Greg Weisert is the older guy, spent most of the last season in AAA, a little bit of time with the Yankees. That's not the intriguing piece of this. Richard Fitz is. Now, 2024 is the ETA. Big dude, 6'3", 230. Heater continues to improve, has a slider as well that's intriguing, just 152 innings in double, or I should say, he threw 152 innings in double A last year, 348 ERA and a 114 whip. So those are pretty good numbers. And like I said, 6'3", 230, big dude. And then Nicholas Judas, who they drafted in 2023 to the Yankees, he's 6'8", 230. This is a guy that was thrown like mid-80s a couple of years ago. The velocity continues to go up. He actually hit 100 last spring. Now, he was sitting 91-94 at Louisiana Monroe, comes up, gets drafted by the Yankees in 2023. This is another intriguing piece, right? So the thing I think about with Fitz and Judas is, look, I'm not going to pretend I know everything about these guys, right? (laughs) I mean, the Red Sox just traded for them, and they're young guys, right? But this is what I'll say. This has Craig Breslow written all over it, right? Because what did we tell you when the Red Sox decided to hire Craig Breslow? Remember, all those guys in the Cubs organization, all those guys, the velocity was going up. This is what he did in Chicago, is he helped guys elevate their stuff, elevate their velocity. He's trying to put that same program into place with this Red Sox organization. You're bringing a guy that's 6'8", 230. I'm sure Breslow's looking at this guy like, yes, this guy is going to work for me. There's a reason they identified these guys in the Yankees organization. So we'll see how they work out. But I love the fact that we heard so much about this pitching development program that Breslow put together in Chicago. And basically, one of the first moves he makes is, hey, let me get some guys that I think I can get more out of or their stuff's going to be better. And look, in the case of Judas, the guy's 22 years old. So it's not like he's a fully developed product. Fitz is still a relatively young guy as well. So they can develop these guys. So I like the idea of bringing in a bunch of right-handed pitching, and this is where the Red Sox needed some depth, some guys that were, in the case of Fitz, close to the major leagues in terms of the ETA being a 2024. If he's a piece of the puzzle this year for the Red Sox, great, but you weren't going to sign Verdugo long-term, get something for him, and see if the guy, Craig Breslow, who you brought in, who's great at developing pitchers and has this program, see if it works out. So I love that fact of it. In terms of, you look at the other elements here, in terms of what the Red Sox have been rumored to be interested in over the first couple of days or over the last week or in change. Some more things developing on Tuesday. Seth Lugo is a starter they've been interested in. They've been linked to. Multiple people had that. When you look at Lugo, middle to back end of the rotation guy can certainly be in the middle of the rotation. 6% walk rate last year, which was 15th of 67 starters with a minimum of 140 innings. So you like that. 
because the Red Sox have had issues with guys that walk the ballpark. Now he keeps the ball on the ground, 45.2% ground ball rate, which was 21st. The launch angle is 9.9 degrees, which is the 17th lowest. So guys are swinging down on him. He gets a lot of ground balls. The FIP was 25th out of those 67 starters at 383. The ERA 22nd at 357 out of those 67 starters. The strikeout to walk ratio is 17th, even though he's not a big strikeout guy. 23.2% strikeout rate is 35th, but he makes up for that because he doesn't walk anybody. Now, interesting that he doesn't get a lot of swinging strikes. The whiff rate is 59th, 21.8%. The swinging strike rate, 9%, which is an incredibly low number based on you would think that with the whiff rate. That was 60th, but he does get a lot of called strikes, 18.7%. That is fifth out of those 67 starters. And part of the reason for that is throws a curveball. And the curveball he throws like 30% of the time this past season, it's 7.1. It's like the the drop on that thing, 7.1 inches above average. So that's a that's a big number when it comes to a curveball. So he's got a lot of depth to that curveball. And I'm sure this is another guy that the Red Sox look at in terms of Craig Breslin and say, hey, we think we can actually mess with the pitch mix even more and get more out of the player. Now, that's obviously a piece I wouldn't mind adding in a guy like Seth Lugo. Not that I would be super fired up about that. The other guy that they've been linked to is Lucas Giolito which 9.2% walk rate, 56 out of 67 starters with a minimum of 140 innings, walks the ballpark. Strikeout rate was still good last year, 25.7%, which was 20th. He gives up a ton of loud contact, 2.0 home runs per nine, which is 65th out of 67. The barrel percentage, 11%, 65th. So 11% of his batted balls are barreled up. That's a terrible number. Does not keep the ball on the ground at all, (laughs) evident by the numbers in terms of the home runs. 36.2%, 36.2%, that's 57th out of 67. The FIP 527, uh, which is 62nd, and the ERA 488, which is 58th. So Lucas Giolito, obviously a big-time prospect when he was drafted all those years ago, and he had like two really good years in there, but he's never fully developed what people thought he could be. He's always had command issues. To me, this would just be a flyer and. Breslow taking a gamble on a guy, hey, let me get him in my program and I can fix him. So it's not like I would be super pumped about Giolito, but if the Red Sox do sign him, it's like, okay, you can kind of tell what Breslow thinks. Is there something in there that he can fix? Like I said, as it pertains to Lugo, that's a guy that can at least go out there and give you 140 innings or so. Now, these are just pieces on the periphery right now because we know, like I just point these guys out because these are guys that the Red Sox have been linked to. Obviously, they're going to add starting pitching this particular offseason. But overall, we know the big guy out there, Yamamoto. That's the guy the Red Sox are after. They've still been linked to him. They've been linked to Jordan Montgomery, which would be a nice piece. We just saw him pitch unbelievably well in that postseason run for the Rangers. And we all know that he can pitch in this division, formerly of the Yankees. But Yamamoto's the guy that the Red Sox, they're invested in trying to get Yamamoto here now. Essentially, what's going to happen here is, first of all, you have to wait. Otani's going to eventually sign. And then wherever he goes, it feels like there's momentum for him to go back to the Angels. I hope for the sake of the sport, that does not happen because, of course, we'd like to see him play in relevant baseball in baseball games. Apparently, he wasn't happy or his camp wasn't happy that Dave Roberts said that the Dodgers had a conversation with him. But nonetheless, Yamamoto is going to sign after Otani to see sort of where the market's at. And I hope the Red Sox land him. They're going to do something in terms of Adding starting pitching, as I said, these are just a couple of guys they've been linked to, but Yamamoto's the guy they're after. Yamamoto, Montgomery, those type of guys that the Red Sox are really after. I am encouraged by 
and I know we've heard about this in the past, that the Red Sox are going to be active. I really think they are. I really think they're all in trying to improve this team this particular season and get back to the playoffs because these past two years have been a dumpster fire for this organization. All right, so a little hot stove, baby. Remember when the hot stove used to be a real thing where it's like, hey, it's the winter meetings and all these guys are getting signed. At least we have some movement in Major League Baseball. And yeah, it stinks to look back at the Mookie Betts trade, but what is, like we all know the Mookie Betts trade stinks. It was a sunk cost at this particular point in time in terms of having Verdugo on the roster. But what was Craig Breslow supposed to do? Keep him around? He's got no links to Alex Verdugo and not that Hein Bloom would have kept him around this offseason either, but you needed to move on from Verdugo. We'll see where if Verdugo stays with the Yankees, which that could be interesting if he does just from a rivalry perspective, or if he ends up somewhere else, if the Yankees are one of the teams that gets in on this Juan Soto situation, maybe they move Verdugo. So, little baseball. All right, a lot more to get into. Connor Ryan will join us to talk bees. Coming up next, though, my buddy Andrew Filipponi from 93.7 The Fan in Pittsburgh. Can the Patriots actually win on Thursday? We'll ask Pony next. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now to talk about what some people are calling the best game of the century, the Patriots and the Steelers coming up on Thursday night. It is Andrew Filipponi from 93.7 The Fan in Pittsburgh. You also see him on FanDuel TV. Pony, what's going on, man? How are you? Uh, I've been trying to get Mike Tomlin traded this week, Brian. So I'm doing <laughs> yeoman's work here. I'm doing God's work. Uh, Washington needs a coach. David Tepper used to be a Steelers minority owner, and he's from here. So I'm trying to use my platform to get those very rich men to back up a brakes truck for the Steelers uh, overrated coach. Okay, so I wanted to ask you about this because I saw the tweets that you had about Tomlin and the commanders. It'd be nice to get some compensation. The Patriots, too, may be moving on from their coach. So maybe there is competition in the marketplace now. Like, hey, are you going to trade for Bill or are you going to trade for Tomlin? But what's the what's the thing that upsets you the most about Tomlin? Because from the outside looking in, we hear the stat all the time. He's never had a losing season and all that. I would say, like, in these big games, the Patriots, like, during the Brady era, would always just dominate the Steelers because they showed Tom Brady the same defense every time. I know the Matt Canada thing was obviously an issue for a while, but what's your biggest issue with Tomlin and why do you think the Steelers want to move on or should move on rather? Not that they want to, but you yeah. want them to move yeah. on. Yeah, uh, well, it, it's it's six years without a playoff win and they're not going to get one this year. So that would stretch it to seven going back to when Noel took over in 69. They've never had a longer drought than what they've experienced right now. He's only won a playoff game in four of his uh, 16, soon to be 17 seasons. So it's not even like there's continued success there where every year they're winning at least a round. No, uh, it's only happened three times since they went to their last Super Bowl in 2010 when they lost to Green Bay. And those three playoff, playoff wins were against uh, a Miami Dolphins team that was quarterbacked by Matt Moore because Ryan Tannehill was out. <laughs> um a Chiefs team where they didn't score a touchdown the entire game. They kicked six field goals and won. Uh, and then they beat the Bengals in A.J. McCarron. There was no Andy Dalton. And they needed Vontez Burfick to lose his mind and Pac-Man Jones to push a Steelers assistant coach and draw a penalty to win that game. So, yeah, it's lackluster. Uh, he's left all of us wanting, if you're being real about the situation, and coming off easily – one of the worst losses in Steelers history where you don't just lose a game to an awful team. You get boat raced in the game. They were down three touchdowns in the fourth quarter against a two-win team at home, Brian. 
Well, hey, that was massive for us as Patriots fans that the Cardinals won that game because we're hoping to get one of the top two draft picks, hopefully the top pick. So that was massive from a Patriots perspective the other day. So I thank the Steelers for that, that they were willing to lose that game. Speaking of that, by the way, I saw the video you tweeted out. Jalen Warren said they didn't take the Cardinals seriously. I just can't comprehend, and maybe this goes back to your coaching point, how does that happen at this point in the season when, hey, you win that game, you get to what, eight wins, and the next game is against the Patriots, who we all know absolutely stink. How were you not ready to play? That, to me, just doesn't make any sense, going back to your point about one of the worst losses you've seen. Because they're not accustomed to being in this spot with these with these players, with this collection of players. They've been, since Ben retired, uh, they had never been this big of a favorite before. Uh, they were used to, with either Trubisky or Pickett as a rookie or second-year quarterback, they were either used to being in a coin flip game or they were used to being in a situation where they were the underdog and there were low expectations. So I, I said on Friday before this game, there's no uh, automatic win for me because I've never seen this team in this situation before where you're right, Brian, it all was lined up for them with the Patriots game on Thursday, home uh, at home off a short week against a terrible team, uh, the Colts without Jonathan Taylor the week after, the Bengals with Jake Browning as their quarterback. I mean, I thought they would get to uh, the game against Seattle, which is in week 17. I would. I thought they would get to that game with an 11 and four record, and so now instead you lose this game to Arizona. All bets are off for me the rest of the way. Pickett's out. I mean, there's no reason for them. They're a six point favorite in this game, but there's no reason to think that the Steelers uh, are going to win because of how anemic their offense is, and because they're just not a team that thrives in these situations. I trust Tomlin more as a five or six point underdog than I do a five or six point favorite, Brian. Okay, I don't like the fact that you said you are not confident the Steelers can win this game because the Patriots need to lose this game. Last week, we sweat we sweated out a loss, right? I mean, the Chargers scored six points, did not score a touchdown and beat the Patriots. That's how bad it was. But I'll, I'll get to the game in a second. But you mentioned Roethlisberger there, and I'm wondering because we're now seeing this, obviously, with the Patriots, where they had the one good year in 2021 where they went to the playoffs. Although if you go back through the schedule, they didn't beat any good teams. And the good teams they beat... They had big injuries, like McCaffrey wasn't playing for Carolina, injuries across the board, right? So with Brady out, it's sort of like the culture is not the same as it once was. And we're seeing all these issues within the organization. And I know that Ben at the end there, he wasn't the same player that he was, obviously, for the bulk of his career. He had a more staggering sort of downturn than Tom Brady did, of course. But are you seeing that with the Steelers is that, hey, maybe Ben was a bigger part of the culture than maybe was anticipated and now... Tomlin is kind of exposed, kind of like we're seeing here with Bill. Well, the culture stuff for them, to me, that had less to do with guys like Roethlisberger and more to do with the Hall of Fame players that they had mm. on the defensive side of the ball in those teams that won in 05 and 08. Palomalu, uh, guys that are not pro football Hall of Famers, but are Steelers uh, Hall of Honor guys like uh, Aaron Smith, Brett Kiesel, James Ferrier. Uh, Casey Hampton, these are household names to Steelers fans, maybe less so to the casual NFL fan, but you know, the defense on those teams set the tone for everything. And Roethlisberger was still in his early years and was a clutch player and would make big plays to win games, but wasn't a guy that was so much driving wins. They didn't need him to score 
27 points per game to win back then because of what their defense was. And so Roethlisberger was the perfect quarterback for those teams, but they didn't win because of him. And so I think when that changed, you know, Ben was never a leader in the way that Tom was. Uh, Ben was a leader by the way he played. He was an excellent football player. The other things that come with that uh, position or with that status on a team, I don't think he was very good at. Um, You know, he might, he might get pissed off at me for saying that, but I think even his own teammates, no, I'm serious. I think even his own teammates would admit that, Brian, um, that he just was one of the great natural athletes in the history of the sport. Uh, he had physical skills and tools that are very rare that you don't see often, if ever. And he also matched that with being a great processor. He could read defenses and make snap decisions at an elite level. So that's why he's going to be a first ballot Hall of Famer. But no, like, I don't think. Ben set the tone for the organization where just merely having him around got other people to fall in line and follow his lead. I don't think he was that type of player. Yeah, that makes sense. It was just more about his individual greatness on the field because he had a stretch there where for three, four years, I mean, it was Brady, him and Manning were the best quarterbacks in the league. I mean, I still can't believe that that group of guys, and I understand why, because they had issues, Antonio Brown, Le'Veon Bell, et cetera. But that team never winning a Super Bowl or even, quite frankly, coming close. Like, what was the closest they came? The 16 championship game against the Patriots or the Patriots? Yeah, Chris Hogan had the best game of his life and they didn't want to defend him or cover him at all. Uh, That team in 16 had uh, the Le'Veon Bell injury, obviously. So they were dealing with that. He gets hurt in that AFC championship game. So that maybe factored into a little bit. But. They just defensively in those years, 16 and 17, 17, they won 13 games and got beat by Blake Bortles in a playoff game at Heinz Field. They just didn't have, uh, it was a transitional period for that group. And Watt was a rookie in 17 and Hayward was their best defensive player and they had linebacker problems. The Shazier thing happened in 17, unfortunately. But you know, at that point, I think it's fair going back to Tomlin, you've got all, all these great players on offense can you coach up a defense that's lacking in a few areas? And he didn't. Uh, you know, I'll say this about Belichick. I think Belichick would have won a Super Bowl with one of those teams. I don't I don't think, you know, I, I wouldn't, if he were their coach in 16, you flip it, I think the Steelers were a better team on paper than New England that season. So that's where a lot of the angst comes in from people like me is you probably had a team that underachieved in that era Now you've come out of the Roethlisberger era and there's really no confidence, Brian, that Mike Tomlin can develop a quarterback on his own and get this franchise set up to win in the years to come. Yeah, I will tell you one thing about that. It's a great point on Belichick is he wouldn't show Tom Brady the same defense every time they play and not do anything differently because Tom's just going to destroy that. Even the one game that Tom played against Bill and look, there were weather conditions in that game. But Tom wasn't great. Like Tom struggled in that game for, and the Bucks won it, but it wasn't like a vintage Brady game. So yeah, certainly if you change the coaches, it probably does go a little bit differently in that game. Now, maybe they don't win it definitely because of Bill, but the game plan would have been better than the game plan that the Steelers had. All right. So looking at this game coming up on Thursday, it's crazy going back in time, thinking about how great those games were, the Patriots and the Steelers. And now we're talking about Mitchell Trubisky against Bailey Zappi. So right now on FanDuel, they have the over-under at 30 and a half, which would be the lowest over-under since 2008. K 
Kenny Pickett had the, what is it, the tightrope surgery that everybody has. So Mitchell Trubisky is in. Trubisky is 43rd out of 46 quarterbacks in EPA per play. Only P.J. Walker, Joe Flacco, and Will Levis are worse over the past two seasons. Now, Kenny Pickett hasn't been good either. Like, he's really struggled from a guy that maybe looked like he was going to be a promising rookie. So I know that Trubisky just blows. He stinks. I get all that. But how big is the drop-off from Pickett to Trubisky considering the way that Pickett had played this season? Well, there's really only a discernible drop-off in one area, Brian, and that's Trubisky is going to do reckless things that jeopardize the game because he'll make three or four turnover-worthy plays in every game he starts. Now, there was an exception last year. They went to Carolina late in the year when Carolina actually needed the game probably more than the Steelers did. He started for Pickett against Sam Darnold, and he was really good that game. Now, they had a running game at the time that helped that too. And honestly, though, the Steelers have run the ball great the last month or so with Jalen Warren and Najee Harrison with the offensive line moves. They're they're starting Broderick Jones now, and I know he was a guy that Patriots fans looked at a lot in that draft. The Steelers moved up ahead of New England, which, believe me, had everything to do with New England. I don't care what anybody says about that. The Jets, I think, were in cahoots with the Steelers to F the Patriots on that pick. Uh, I've had people tell me that. Um, so I think that Trubisky is the is the, the absolute worst quarterback to be playing in this game because if it were Pickett, he wouldn't turn the ball over. He, he, he had gone seven games without an interception. It's the longest streak in Steelers history, the most consecutive pass attempts without an interception in the entire history of the organization. And they would find a way to win the ugliest football game imaginable with him. Since Trubisky got benched as the starter, he's got this bug up his ass to try to make plays to win games because I think he feels like he was handcuffed when he was the starter last year. And he's been on this tour of vengeance, so to speak, where, oh, you guys really don't think I'm a good quarterback? I'll show you, and we're going to see that guy show up uh, Thursday night where he might, there's going to be probably 10 plays in the game, Brian, where he's either going to make a great play that reminds you why he was the second pick in the draft over Mahomes, and he's going to try to, and he might make five plays that make you think he's one of the worst quarterbacks you've ever seen in your entire life. And that's the Mitchell Trubisky experience. And with Pickett, there's none of that. He doesn't live on the extremes at all. He's in the middle, and that's probably, honestly, what uh, Tomlin likes about him so much, Brian, that he's really consistent in that way, which makes for really boring watches. I mean, he's not an entertaining quarterback at all, other than the game against Cincinnati two weeks ago after Canada got fired. Other than that, the whole uh, uh, mandate seems to be just don't turn the ball over and we'll find a way to win games. All right, so, yeah, and we experienced the Mitchell Trubisky thing last year when we saw the Patriots play the Steelers. But when you look at the receiving core, obviously the big name that sticks out for Patriots fans is George Pickens because he went two picks after Tyquan Thornton. Thornton has been a bust so far. He had an end around the other day for like 39 yards, but he dropped what could have been a touchdown pass, like one of the only explosive plays the Patriots could have made in this game. Pickens, I know, is what, fourth in yards per reception at 17. The yards and the targets don't add up to the yards per reception where he ranks, so to speak. So, and I know there's been some issues there with Pickens and also with Deontay Johnson, 
but sort of give us an idea of what type of player Pickens is and are there problems with him within the organization? Well, I think there's definitely frustrations all the way around. I mean, I think Pickens believes, and I don't disagree with him on this, Brian. I think Pickens feels like if he were in another offense, he would be one of the best wide receivers in the NFL already. And if he had a Justin Herbert as a quarterback, if he had a Trevor Lawrence, if he had somebody like that, we would see him put up huge numbers and he would be looked at as one of the best players at his position. Now, I do think he's a very, very moody player. I think that he allows for plays either where he's open and he doesn't get the ball or he's just phased out of the offense because they're trying to run the ball or whatever. I think he allows that to affect him play to play. I think he's an easy guy. It's easy to get under his skin. I think that an opponent can mess with him a little bit. I think if he sees that there's double coverage there, he just assumes that he's not going to get the ball. And I think he kind of goes into a shell when that happens. I mean, there are things about him from that standpoint that you can't measure with a stopwatch or whatever else that I think are legitimate reasons why he wasn't a first round pick. I mean, for the longest time, it, people just thought if he hadn't torn his ACL at uh, Georgia, he would have been a top 20 pick. I don't agree with that. Uh, I mean, Jackson Smith and Jigba caught, what, like nine balls at Ohio State his last year. He still ended up being a first round pick, and he, he didn't even have great combine and pro day numbers. So I do think there's something there with Pickens. But Brian, the Steelers love these types of wide receivers. I mean, the whole thing with Mike Tomlin is he believes that he'll get you in uh, the building and that he's going to get your head screwed on straight and he's going to coach you up and he's going to foster an environment and a culture that allows for these guys to succeed. And I think lately that's more myth than fact. I mean, you look at Chase Claypool, they had the jettison him. Thank God they got that pick from the Bears for him. You mentioned Johnson, who's just an absolute embarrassment right now uh, to the <laughs> He is. Uh, the guy danced after they scored a touchdown to cut it to two touchdowns with four minutes left against the Cardinals. You know, Belichick has cut off his nose to spite his face with punitive discipline before. We all know that. I don't need to rehash that on this show. But I can't, like, he's the antithesis of a Belichick player, my opinion. Yeah. Um, I would take Pickens, though, because I know you said he has these issues. At least he's talented. All Tyquan Thornton do, can do is run fast in a straight line. And the well, Patriots have arguably the worst receiving core in the NFL. And earlier this season, he was getting healthy scratches. That's how bad that pick yeah. has been. For well, Bill. I don't like, think, but I don't, I also don't think the coaching, the technical coaching has been there with Pickens either. Like, I don't think his route tree has expanded much in the two years he's been here. All he did his rookie year was basically run in a straight line and catch balls downfield. Uh, they haven't, from uh, a creativity standpoint, they haven't moved him around enough and put him in position to get the ball in, in a variety of ways. It's almost like if a team is willing to take him away, Brian, they just concede that and say, okay, we'll go to plan B or plan C. You know, if if Belich and I don't think it will be, but if Belichick's plan on Thursday to win this game was we're going to make sure George Pickens doesn't doesn't beat us. The Steelers would oblige. They would allow for that to happen. But I think Bill will just decide because it's Trubisky that he's going to put eight guys in the box and make Mitch throw the ball to beat him. And I just don't think he's capable of doing that. 
I agree with you because the Patriots need a turnover or two to win this game. They've proven they, they can't score on their own. They're going to need good field position. Like on FanDuel right now, their team total is 12 and a half. And I even think right now that that's high. high. That yeah, high. it seems high for what we've seen over the past couple of weeks. So Bailey Zappi, he was not good in that game. And there was weather conditions. Now, the one thing he didn't do that Mac's been doing all season long is turn the football over. But here's the problem for the Patriots now. Ramondre Stevenson is out. He's dealing with a high ankle sprain. And over the past three weeks and the quarter he played, he was back to being an elite running back again. Like he was well over five yards per carry during that stretch. And now their main running back is Zeke, who is at 3.8 yards per carry. And he has seven 10-yard runs the entire season. He's not the same player that obviously he once was. And Ramondre has been over the past month their best offensive player. So my thing is, I just don't know against the Steelers defense that in most categories is still really good, obviously not as good as it's been in previous seasons, but I just don't see how the Patriots move the football against this Steelers defense. So I do think to your earlier point, this is going to have to be like a, the Patriots are going to need something to go right for them and maybe Trubisky for them to win. Like the Patriots, they want to win, even though we in the fan base don't want them to win. Maybe Trubisky is the perfect quarterback in this particular game because the one way the Patriots are going to win are with the, with the defensive turnover. I mean, they gave up six points the other day and lost. Yeah. Well, I think Tomlin expects Malik Cunningham to play. Yeah. He talked at his press conference about their quarterbacks and went out of his way to bring Cunningham up. And I didn't watch much of the Chargers game, thank God. Uh, so I haven't <laughs> You didn't miss back. anything. Yeah, I haven't gone back. I don't know if I will. Um, if I will go back, because at this point, I don't care as much as I would about the micro of a game and the analysis of like the next matchup because of the overall state of the team right now. But did Cunningham play a lot? Did no, they it was it was really points? odd. Be it was really odd Pony, because I was talking about it on Sunday all week. They talked about Cunningham getting reps and we thought at the very least there was going to be a Malik Cunningham package in this game, right? Like a la Taysom Hill with sure. the Saints. And especially considering the fact that Ramondre goes out relatively early in this game, your running game's not the same without Ramondre Stevenson. Zappi, we know, is a below-average quarterback, well-below-average quarterback, so why don't you mix it up? Now, obviously, Malik Cunningham is not a great passer, but neither is Bailey Zappi, and what Malik Cunningham can do is run. Like, I would be fine if they just ran the ball last week like 60 times before Ramondre got hurt and just play Malik Cunningham, but... I don't know why he didn't play in the game last week. It didn't make any sense. And part of the reason for that probably is Bill O'Brien is literally atrocious at his job. Like people were excited here on the fan base that really the main reason was, hey, he's not Matt Patricia, but he stinks like he's not good. They don't, they don't do any of the easy stuff in the NFL. So I hope Malik Cunningham plays, but I don't know what to expect because I yeah. thought he would play last week. Well, Tomlin expects it. I mean, O'Brien's there because of craft. That's what people have told me. That that's the real reason. I don't know if you've yeah. heard that line too, that that's really yeah, it is. Yep. Um, you know, in a, in a way, and I know the Steelers are seven and five, the other team's two and 10. So in that respect, they're not um, bedfellows. They're not, they're not the same team, but in a lot of ways, these teams deserve what's happening to them. Uh, both seem to be with defensive coaches stuck in the past. There seems to be, I think in both Belichick and Tomlin's mind, they want to win their way because they want to validate their own existence post-Hall of Fame quarterback, Belichick without Brady, Tomlin without Roethlisberger. The Steelers have built a team to win with defense. They spent $130 million on their defense. I think that's what Tomlin wants to do, because I think he feels like that'll make him look better if they win his style, if they win with his bread and butter. 
And I kind of, from the outside looking in, see that with New England, like you'd use your high draft picks on defensive players. You don't invest in your offensive line. Your weapons stink. Like your answer is let's get a running back late in the offseason and pay him top dollar. Like I just, I didn't understand their team building whatsoever this year. It's a make or break year for your quarterback and you don't get him weapons and you don't get him protection. I just, that made zero sense. It makes no sense that a coach who we all acknowledge is super smart would take that tact with things. It's yeah, it makes no sense. Really. Yeah, and, and going back to your point earlier about Broderick Jones, like we're fine with Christian Gonzalez. Like the two guys I wanted there were either Christian Gonzalez because they need, they've been missing that number one corner for years or the guy you mentioned earlier, Jackson Smith and Jigba. So I'm fine with Christian Gonzalez. The problem also is DeAndre Hopkins was just sitting out there. He was at the Patriots facility for like two days, right? And yeah. I'm not saying that DeAndre Hopkins is prime DeAndre Hopkins, but you know what he is? Better than anybody on the Patriots. And it came down to money. Like they could have paid DeAndre Hopkins more than the Titans did because of the salary cap space that was available. Like in no world should DeAndre Hopkins be playing for the Titans or the Patriots. But because all these other teams had either enough receivers or salary cap situations, like in the case of the Bills, they couldn't pay him and the Patriots missed out on that opportunity. So that's been a blind spot. And speaking of blind spots, their best receiver, Jacoby Myers, is now playing for the Raiders. And they bring in your old friend, Juju Smith-Schuster. He has been a complete bus pony. He has one game north of 50 receiving yards. He has more games south of 10 receiving yards than he has games with more than 20 receiving yards. This has gone about as bad as it possibly could. When the Patriots signed him, like, I guess the knee issues were worse than they than anybody thought, I guess, because this is this guy is getting losing reps to six round draft picks. But what did you think about when the Patriots signed Juju? Did you think that he would be good for them? Or do yeah, you think that after no, he got thought, Katie, he'd be thought, bad? I thought it was stupid. Um, yeah, I, I gave Juju credit because I thought in the Super Bowl, he played his ass off for Kansas City. I thought he had a really good game. You know, he did draw the penalty at the end of the game, too. So I thought he, when he went there, he talked about, uh, the fact that Andy Reid wanted him and Mahomes wanted him. And that was like a validation for him as a player that he was wanted by. He was in demand with a great offensive team. And even though he didn't get the money he wanted, I, I, I did feel like that decision on his part was validated by winning a championship and having a hand in it. But, you know, I've never looked at him as anything more than a solid number two wide receiver. His, his stats his first two years were a complete byproduct of a couple of things. Not only the way defenses uh, planned or played against Antonio Brown, but also Roethlisberger and AB had such a love-hate relationship that I think a lot of the times Ben just went to Juju to piss Antonio Brown off. Hundred <laughs> um, uh, percent. That that I I have people that work for the Steelers that have said that that agree with that take. Um, that don't think it's just like a talk show kind of blather thing. That think that there is a lot of truth to that. Um, the dude is a throwback Heinz Ward type wide receiver in that he will block, he will, uh, on third and short, he'll run a four-yard route for a first down. He'll go over the middle. Like, I've always respected that about him, but that's where the praise for Juju ends for me. Like, any team that was looking at him to be, at, even at, especially at this point, there's a lot of mileage on the guy. He took a beating because of the way he played when he was with the Steelers. And I just thought he was going to age very, very poorly. And up until this time, every other instance where he's gone into free agency, 
the way that the rest of the league treated him, I thought back that up. And it's a it's an explosive market for wide receivers. Uh, silly money gets spent there, and none of those people wanted to part with that money for him at any point. So yeah, I thought New England was buying a beat up used car with him, and I didn't think it would quite be this bad, Brian. But I mean, he's been in the league since 2017. So the fact that he's getting close to 30 and has fallen off a cliff is not a complete surprise to me. Yeah, and he's at best when guys are healthy, like when Kendrick Bourne was playing and when Demario Douglas, he, he's coming back from a concussion miss last week as well. When those guys are actually on the field, Juju's at best their third receiver, and you could argue that Parker's been... I'm not a Devontae Parker fan. I think he stinks, but you could argue that Devontae Parker's been more reliable for the Patriots this season. So yeah, it's been a complete bust. All right, so I was just looking. FanDuel still has this at as we record on Tuesday, six points. So by what you said earlier, I'm guessing you think that's too much for the Steelers being six-point favorites. Do you think the Steelers win and don't cover? What do you think the most likely scenario is here? Do you think the oh, Patriots I, go over that 12 and a half? Yeah, I, I would absolutely bet the Patriots to win the game. I think there's mm. too much value there. Um, the other thing is, and I know that Tomlin is probably excited because he wants to kick a dead horse when it's down, but Tomlin absolutely gets psyched out and gets in his own head against the Patriots. And I know people might think, well, that's the Brady effect. That's another thing. That's a retired kind of uh, outdated thought because of a lot of the things that we thought about the Patriots have gone away since uh, Brady left. But the game here two years ago, or no, this was last year, the home opener. Yeah. Uh, you had a play where Mac Jones, I think, hooked up uh, on a long touchdown with Nelson Aguilar in that yeah, game. Yeah, right before half. Right before half, exactly. And Tomlin did something that he never does after that game. He blamed the corner Witherspoon for not playing the ball there and pretty much in his autopsy of the game blamed one player for their loss. And he never does that. He goes out of his way to defend his guys and provide cover for them. And I just thought he was so pissed that he thought he had a vulnerable Patriots team in his own house and found a way to lose that game that he allowed his emotions to come out right after the game was over. And I still think that's true, Brian. I mean, this is the oh, this is the one NFL coach who, you know, bitched about the headsets at the games and, you oh, know, yeah. being able to communicate with his coaches and his players. You know, I, I've heard stories about when they played the Patriots that they, you know, were looking around to make sure there weren't any drones around their practice facility. I'm dead serious. The week of those games. So uh, he is really uptight about playing this team. And I think it manifests on game day. So given the way they played last week, I think he's going to put too much pressure on his team this week on a short week even. And I think New England with Trubisky in there is going to find a way to win this game like 13 to six or something like that. Just completely disgusting. Yeah. By the way, I looked at it. It's plus 190 on the money line at FanDuel right now for the Patriots to win that game. That's an outstanding point about Tomlin, though. I totally forgot about that. That's yep. like a radio drop here locally when Tomlin says we were hearing the Patriots radio broadcast in our headset. Scott Zola from here. That's a homecoming for Scott. Oh, He's yeah. It's for a guy. Yes. So, he went Zoe's to Joe been Montana's thrilled. high school. Oh, really? Yes. 
Ringgold. Interesting. Yeah, Zoe's been uh, fired up about this team. It's been a great. It's been a great product. It's been <laughs> great quarterback play this year for the Patriots. But all right, Pony. I, I would say enjoy the game on Thursday night. But I don't know how anybody could. Mean- yeah. Possibly. Yeah. Nobody. And we'll see. I mean, maybe these two organizations have two different coaches next year. I think it's more likely than not that Bill's gone. Do you think it's more likely than not that Tomlin's back, though? Tomlin will be back. Yeah. They 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 did something completely out of character by firing an offensive coordinator midseason that had never happened before. Uh, so at least, you know, you're seeing the team operate differently than they have for a very long time. So that gives me hope that there would be more. Uh, kind of outside the box, progressive thinking going on there. But to dump Tomlin, uh, they're probably not going to have a losing season this year, so he'll extend that streak. I think that that's what they'll fall back on, that, yeah, it was not the year they wanted, but it's not going to cause their faith in their coach to erode overnight. Yeah, well, I hope you're wrong about your game pick. I hope the Patriots lose the game. I said a couple of weeks ago that, them losing to the Giants was the best result the Patriots have gotten in a game since they beat the Rams in the Super Bowl. That's how important it was to get. <laughs> I mean, you get Caleb Williams or Drake May now, especially after what happened with Arizona. So the Patriots cannot fuck this up and end up beating the Pittsburgh Steelers. And I know Bill really wants to win. Like, Bill's not trying to tank. His team just stinks. No. All right. That is Andrew Filippone from 93.7 The Fan of Pittsburgh. Pony, thanks so much for the time, man. You bet, dude. Great stuff there from my buddy Andrew Filippone from The Fan in Pittsburgh. Jamie and I will give you our picks in just a little bit. We'll get into this game. I cooked up a same-game parlay thanks to our friends at FanDuel, so we'll get into that. Coming up next, though, you'll hear from Connor Ryan as we check in on the Bees. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on Cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now, he covers the bees for Boston.com and the Boston Globe as well. It is Connor Ryan. Connor, thanks for coming back on, man. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. We talked, of course, before the season, talked a bit last year as well. So we're 24 games into this thing. We're recording on Tuesday. The Bruins, a little bit of a break here, played Sunday, and then they'll play again on Thursday. So the Bruins start off the way they did last year, right? Red Hot 13-2-1 or whatever it was after before that game or after the Montreal game on the 18th of November. They fall to Tampa in overtime. You're thinking, no big deal. They respond with a 3-1 win over the Panthers, who we all now hate now, and apparently the Kachuk brothers hate each other as well, like that whole thing. So that's, that's an interesting situation there, but... Then they lost to Detroit and New York on back-to-back days. Odd day game on Saturday after they played that Friday day game as well. But then the Blue Jackets loss was ugly. Montgomery's pulling Swayman. Grizzlick's losing the puck. Breakaway the other way. And they lose three consecutive games. But then they respond with this three-game winning streak. And we'll get to Marshawn in a second here because, of course, he's been the catalyst. But after that Columbus game, were you worried at all? Or were you thinking, hey, this is maybe just a schedule situation? Did you feel like, okay, they'll come out of this? Yeah, I mean, I think you look at those three games. It's almost, I think, good to see one of those situations happen for the Bruins. And again, you can chalk it up. Like Detroit's a pretty good team this year. The Rangers, I think, might be the best team in the East right next to the Bruins. So, all right, you can chalk that up as maybe just hard-fought losses or uh, things kind of reaching a boiling point in terms of the defense. 
Losing to Columbus, who was also on the second leg of a back-to-back, not great. That team is not very good. But and almost, you know, as much as Jim Montgomery, you know, took drastic measures there, pulling Swayman or, or doing things to get that team going. I'd almost rather you, you know, take those losses now and like know what it's like to kind of get punched in the mouth in uh, early December than you look back at last year. It really looked smooth sailing the entire year for the Bruins. They didn't have a three-game regulation losing streak all year. You didn't have games like this where the defense completely falls apart. Your goaltending is not up to par of what you need from them. So I, I think as much as as ugly as that, especially that game in Columbus was, it's almost like they needed a, a couple of losses like that to validate some things that have been sprouting up with this team, whether it's the rush defense really lacking, uh, whether it's the net front coverage not doing enough, whether it's uh, failing to really adhere to the checking game that's leading to a lot of one-and-done situations and a lot of counter-rushes down the other end of the ice. It's almost like it's better to have that happen now and, and take a loss against a pretty bad Columbus team, take the lumps now, and learn from it. And it seems like that's what they've done over these last couple of games is building off of that loss. Yeah, and not to go back too far, but what did you make of that whole decision at the time where Montgomery pulled Swayman. I thought it was kind of odd. Like it was, and I understand like he was trying to deliver a message. I thought, hey, after the previous game, you kind of called out the team, but, and so they didn't really respond to that. So maybe you even had to go even more drastic. I just thought that was weird because Olmark was bad in the previous game. So I felt like, hey, you put your team in a bad position to try to come back and win that game. Yeah, it's kind of been a really interesting dynamic this year with Montgomery where you look at last year, whenever you asked him about the team and the communication with them, a lot of it all went back to relying on guys like Bergeron and Krejci and these guys and how easy it was for this coach in his first year to rely on such an entrenched veteran leadership group. And this year, I think it's kind of encouraging to see him and take more of a hardline approach and being maybe more critical there. I mean, they had a game earlier in November where I think it was a 5-2 win over Buffalo. Not a very good team. It could have been even more lopsided. And his first comments after the game were like, well, if our goalies weren't bailing us out, this wouldn't be the same thing. Like, we've been saved. Our record is a direct result of our goalies kind of saving our skin out there. And I think uh, as maybe critical as it was of taking Swayman out, and you can be like, should he be the guy that's punished? When you talk to the players and how they view their own game, of course, they look more at the team-wide perspective. But if there's one area of the roster they love and they really don't want to be put in a bad spot, it's the goalies. And when your defense is that bad and you're letting up those chances and it's making your goalies look bad, whether that's leaving Olmark out to dry for seven game for seven goals against, whether it's swimming getting pulled really early and kind of a, a bad look for him. I think that's more of a message of getting the rest of the team riled up and getting them mm. rolling as opposed to maybe signaling out a guy like Swayman. So it's been really interesting to see this year just how much Montgomery has kind of changed his approach of not being good cop, bad cop or anything like that, but being a little bit more in tune and maybe more critical with these guys in terms of getting them playing the right right style of game uh, earlier on this year. Yeah, that's an interesting point. It's like, hey, I'm doing this to Swayman to punish you guys to try to get through to them. It's an an interesting tactic. All right, so I mentioned Marshawn had the power play goal against Montreal on the 11th. After that, he goes the rest of the month of November without a goal. That covers eight games. And he went five games without a point. And then you have the three-game losing streak was included in there. But then Saturday night, it looks like you're on your way to a 3-2 win in regulation over Toronto. Austin Matthews has that crazy goal to force overtime. And you're thinking, oh, no, like you had to win this game. And then Marshawn ends up going or Pasternak tries to go five hole, doesn't convert there, finds Marshawn. Marshawn like gets the puck, grabs it out of the air, finishes there. And then after that, he has the hat trick 
the following game. And so you look at it now on the season, he's up to 11 goals, but four, of course, came in the last two games. It had been really by committee after Pasternak, right? Like now Marshawn's up to, what, 23 points, Coyle's at 20, Coyle nine goals, which is third on the team. And he was second for a while before Marshawn's recent streak here. So I know it's two games, but could this sort of, and I know Marshawn said like, hey, I'm getting good shots. I just have to finish. Could this be sort of a jumping off point for Marshawn? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, he's no stranger to having these kind of lulls. I think he even mentioned that last year was the longest stretch without goals. I think he had a few games where he had an assist here and there that kept kind of the point streak going. But in terms of an extended rut, he's been through these before. So he doesn't get too high or too low during these stretches where goals aren't uh, going into the back of the net. But uh, I think it's critical for for him playing, you know, this kind of game. And I think also playing a really emotional driven game. I mean, he had a lot of emotion this weekend. Um, Unfortunately, his grandmother passed away on Friday, right before the the Toronto game. And I I think you can see this is a guy that has made a arguably Hall of Fame career, a career that's going to probably have him get his number retired. A lot of it, you know, has been built off of uh, will, determination, and drive. And I think you you saw that I think spill out these last couple of games, and that's why he's you know the captain of this team now. He's yes, he's the elder statesman, but whether it's you know early on in his career to now where he's got the C on his sweater. He's been a guy that has a knack for dragging his teammates into the fight and, and setting the tone. And I think you look at as, as great as that game on Saturday was, like the performance on Sunday where that looked like a game where nothing was going right for the team. Columbus is still not good. For some reason, Spencer Martin, that Columbus goalie, is otherworldly against the Bruins. Felt like just one of those tough games back-to-back. Um, and Marshane pretty much wills them into two points, right? Like not just the hat trick draws a penalty before the third goal, um, a, a real takeover game from him. And that's why he's so critical in, in that lineup. Like it's why a guy like McAvoy, I think is so important in the playoffs where you need a big hit, a tone uh, shifting play or what have you. It's guys like McAvoy and Martian that step up and step up regularly. And it's encouraging to see him at least get on a roll here. And hopefully he builds that moving forward. Yeah, and it does seem like they do really feed off him. When he gets hot, like the team plays significantly better. All right, so we saw that coil line with Van Riemsdyk and Frederick a lot early on in the season. DeBrus was playing on that Potra line. More recently, it's been DeBrus up there with Zaka and Pasternak, Coyle with Marshawn and Danton Heinen, who's been a surprise for this team, Potra with Frederick and Van Riemsdyk. So do you expect Montgomery to do this throughout the season, tinker with the lines a little bit? Like, what do you think about the recent changes he's made here? Yeah, it seems like it's going to be a continuous uh, kind of carousel of, of forwards of how they're shuffling in and out. I mean, if you told me before the year that Dan Heinen was going to be a top six forward, I'd be like, oh, uh, would something really go wrong? Again, he's playing uh, well so far for what they've asked for him to do. I think last time I checked, he has uh, one fewer uh, five-on-five point than Tyler Bertuzzi, which is interesting <laughs> note there. Uh, Tyler's not really having a great send-up in Toronto, but I think you're going to continue to see uh, as Montgomery's trying to find the best fit for guys like especially Patra, a guy like DeBrusk, who they really need to get going at five-on-five play, find out where those guys are are put in the best position to succeed. And I think having a guy like Coyle, who has been able to, you know, drive play with a lot of guys like Trent Frederick or James Van Riemsdyk on maybe more of the third line, but he's done a solid job further up in the lineup as well, which I think – as much as this season, I think the biggest question mark was how is Coyle and Zaka going to do in those top six spots? They've been pretty steady so far, and they really haven't been much of the issue. Like they've been 
consistent in their scoring. They've been really solid uh, defensively as well. They haven't been the issue. It's about kind of the supporting cast and this revamped forward court where the pieces best fall into place around them more than them and whether they can make the most of the added minutes that have been put on their plate. Yeah, I think Coyle's been awesome, but I've always yeah. been a big Coyle guy, so I think he's had an awesome season for this team. But you mentioned DeBrus, so three goals in his last seven games. His role's been different this year, as you mentioned, playing with Potra a lot. He did have the power play goal against Detroit, then against the Sharks, the nice feed from Zaka now that he's playing with Zaka and Pasta. And that line, I mean, it's a small sample size, but five on five, just south of 44 minutes, 34 shots to 17. The Corsi ratings weigh in their favor as well. And you look at DeBrusque and you go to last year and you say 50 points in 64 games. And then this year, as you alluded to, it's 10 points in 23 games. And four of those 10 points have come in his last seven games. So you can sort of understand why this production's been down, right? Because the power play minutes, he's seventh on the team, just the one goal, the one point. Last year, he's fifth on the power play. And he still missed a good chunk of the season with that injury. So six goals and 14 points on the power play last year. He was eighth or he's eighth in penalty kill minutes this year. Last year, he was 11. So playing more there. So clearly he was asked at the beginning of the season really to take on sort of a different responsibility. And you look at the five on five numbers, like they're good. The bees have outscored teams 15 to five with him on the ice, which is, I mean, that's a what 75% in terms of the goals for percentage. But you look at the raw numbers, they haven't been there for a guy that was really good last year, had his career season. I do wonder, do you think putting him with Pasternak and Zaka was sort of Montgomery saying, hey, we need his offense now? Like, hey, what he did for us earlier in the season, it really helped us. And at the beginning of the year, they're winning a lot of games defensively with their goaltending. And now it's like, hey, like DeBrusque is one of the most explosive guys we have. The speed is ridiculous. Like we need to use him more in an offensive role. Yeah, I think that has to be the case because it's really kind of a fascinating season for DeBrus because it's obviously under Montgomery. It's a little bit maybe more copacetic than it was under Bruce Cassidy. But I also think <laughs> DeBrus DeBrusque has been more of a complete player that it's not like when he's not scoring, he's a liability, right? Like I think you look at how much he's involved on the PK, which has been really good. He's still logging a lot of even strength ice time. Driving play, like generating chances, as you said, like the, the goal differential is impressive for a guy that I think has become instead of being a streaky score into more of a complete two-way player, and that's great, but still the bread and butter of Jake DeBrus' game and where his value is best utilized is when he's generating uh, goals and when he's driving to the net and making things happen. As you said, the, the lack of power play reps uh, hasn't helped him. I think James Van Riemsdyk stepping in has uh, really aided the Bruins there, so it's been kind of a trade-off in that regard. But uh, as solid as DeBrusque is defensively now, and I think he's fit into the – DNA of what the Bruins need in terms of responsible two-way play, still need him to score more goals. So I, I think putting him with uh, Zaka and Pasternak, putting him back at left wing, his natural spot, hopefully that just leads to more chances because if there's one thing we've seen from DeBrusque over the years, whether it's his early years of being a really up-and-down scorer to now where he is more of a mature player, once he gets a few goals, they tend to come in bunches. So you hope that more time with Zaka and Pasternak kind of gets him on a roll here. Yeah, and two for DeBrusque, I'm sure personally, he wants to get those raw numbers up, right? Because, I mean, he's going to be looking that for money. a contract, right? So, yeah, he's certainly looking for money there. All right, so not a surprise the Pasta's been awesome. Entering play Tuesday's top three in points, he's top ten in goals, and the goal against the Leafs is just ridiculous. The one word that I just keep coming back to when you watch him play is dangerous, right? Like, you feel like he can score from anywhere right now. I mean, he's, just had, he's had an unbelievable season. He's had an unbelievable past couple of years. 
But what stuck out to you this year, maybe more so than previous years? Is it the leadership? Is it, I mean, he is hitting guys more, which is something that he didn't, I mean, not that he's like this power forward or anything, but he does hit guys more than he does in the past. But has anything stuck out to you different from last year to this year? Yeah, I mean, I think you look at his value and his ability to be almost like a cheat code offensively, right? Where, I mean, you look at that Toronto game, back and forth, you're getting a few chances here and there, then he goes down the ice snaps a puck for a goal and kind of puts you in the lead there. Like that's where his value is. But I think what makes David Parsonak such an important player for this team and why he's so gifted offensively is that he's not like a one trick pony, right? It's not like he's just waiting in the circle for a one timer on the power play. Like offensively, he can generate goals off of, you know, the wrist shot, the dangles, all those things. But I think what you've seen this year from him where uh, teams are, you know, drawing their entire PK game plan around taking, you know, the shot away from him. When you look at the fact that there's younger players in the lineup, they want to get involved. I think he's making a concerted effort of being more of a playmaker. And he has that skill and that patience and that poise of the puck that he can make things happen where he's drawing defenders out, where he's creating kind of passing lanes and seams that he can hit guys uh, on the tape. And for him to do that, of being still a very capable guy that, can fall backwards into a 40-45 goal season, I think, year in and year out. But the fact that he's still on pace for a career high in points off of an added, you know, assist total shows you just how good he is as a player, that he can kind of augment and mold his game based on kind of what that roster is. And when you have so many young guys who want to get involved, so many new faces in the lineup, having a guy like Pasternak make things easier for you by drawing guys away from you can go a long way towards getting the rest of the team rolling. So that's why I think he's such a key piece beyond just the the highlight real goals and what have you. Well, too, the other thing is like just going forward with the organization, you think about all the guys that you lost in the off season, whether it be to retirement, to free agency, to trades in the case of Taylor Hall, I know obviously he's hurt, but the reason that this team is going to continue to be good in the playoffs every year is because you have one of the best, what five players in the sport right now. And then you also have a guy like Charlie McAvoy who from my perspective, he looks like a top five defenseman in the league right now. I mean, you look at the numbers on FanDuel. He's got the fifth shortest odds to win the Norris. Obviously, he's Quinn Hughes and Cal McCarr are the like, ridiculous favorites at plus 260. He's at like plus 2,000. Maybe worth sprinkling a little bit on that. But this season, what, it's 17 points in 20 games. He had the suspension. But other than that, I mean, he's been awesome for this team. And it does feel like he's taken on a bigger leadership role. But what do you think? I mean, has this been... Like, to me, he was really good last year coming back from the surgery at the beginning of the season. I feel like he's almost taken even another step because at times last year, like Lindholm was so good for this team and you're looking at both yeah. those guys, but now it's like McAvoy is just, he's on another level. Yeah, I, I think the the last piece missing for McAvoy in terms of being a premier Norris contender is just points, which isn't yeah. fair. I think we go through this argument every year where guys like maybe McAvoy or Jacob Slavin, these guys who are so good in their own end that it can, you know, snuff out scoring plays, just don't get the same recognition because maybe they end the year with 30, 35 points. Uh, if McAvoy goes out and has a 60-point season, he's right in the mix there. And again, is he going to be at the same level as a uh, Adam Fox or Makar or even like an Eric Carlson? Probably not, which again, we can get into that argument when it comes to award voting as to, you know, does... 60 points put you over guys that maybe are just more offensively inclined that maybe don't you know, provide as much defense on the other end of the ice, which is kind of the main part of the job description, but I digress. But I think what makes McAvoy so unique and why I think he's so valued is that he can give you 60 points in a season. He can eat up a lot of minutes, run your power play, run your PK, but 
He's also one of the few guys that can do all those things while also hit you like a freight train, right? Like there's few yeah. guys that can, that can do that as well. And whenever you talk to his teammates as to what makes him so special and why he's so tough to go up against, it's that development. Like you want a game plan on Eric Carlson. It's a pain in the ass when he's running the power play and accounting for him and how slippery he is. You guys can do that, but also have to worry about if you're holding on to the puck down the other end of the ice, getting absolutely walloped into next year. And that's what McAvoy can do on one shift, right? He can set up a play, go down the other end of the ice and blow up a guy. So uh, that's why I think he's such a unique, impactful player on pretty much every shift when he's playing at a high level. I think you've seen him be more assertive offensively. And uh, I think that probably helps his chances in terms of maybe nationally, how he's recognized as one of the best, you know, top five defensemen in the league. Yeah. And if they have like a deep playoff run where he's like one of the main reasons they're making that sort of run. All right. So the goaltending was unbelievable to start the season. We were talking about this off the top. They were not helped during the losing streak, that three game losing streak by their own team. Right. So after winning the Vesna, Olmark, he's 15th in goals against. He's ninth in save percentage. You look at the goals saved above expectation. Swayman's fifth, Olmark's 18th. He's 21st. Olmark is in save percentage above expectation and he's 17th in goals against better than expected. So those just some some of those like advanced numbers, he doesn't come out well. And he gave up a couple of juicy rebounds in that game we were talking about earlier, that New York game. So are you concerned with him at all based on the different type of season that he's had compared to last year? Or do you say, well, hey, Swayman's kind of been elite for this team outside a couple of games, so it's fine if he's your number two guy. Like if the playoffs obviously were going to start tomorrow, Swayman would be the guy starting those games. So is it okay that, like, as the number two goalie, where he's at right now? Yeah, I think right now it's it's been solid. Uh, I think the bigger issue for the team right now is just the defense in front of them has usually just been dreadful. Like, as much as the personnel yeah. is there, the rush defense has been really bad. Net front hasn't been all that great. And, again, you need an elite goalie to bail you out in those situations. That happened time and time again this year. It's been the case this season as well, where if both those guys weren't playing at a high level, would not, you know, have nearly the same record you have now. I'm not really concerned about Omar yet. I think that the bigger issue and the stuff that's more correctable is just uh, the structure in front of him of how he responds and limiting the amount of grade-A chances, the rebounds. Like, as much as I think a few of those goals against the Rangers weren't that great, like Andre Miller had a seeing-eye shot, stuff like that. Um, I, I don't think it's really been, like, an off year for him. I think he's still been... Very, very solid, which when you also have Swayman playing at potential Vesna level uh, style of play, uh, I think you can kind of run with those two guys and have those guys sort each other's games out. Like, that's why I think the Bruins were so good last year and why they never really hit uh, an extended lull is that whenever one of those guys slowed down for a game or two, the other guy, you know, stepped up and kind of carried the weight there. I think you've kind of seen that this year where maybe Allmark's on off to the best start but when Swayman's playing like this, you don't really have to worry about it all that much. Yeah, it's a good point. So you mentioned the defense. What do you think the issue has been there? Because, I mean, for the most part, they have some they have good personnel. I know Forbort missed some time there. But what do you think has been their issue in terms of the structure and whatnot? Is it just like not paying attention to details or what is it? I think it's a lot of, yeah, the finer details part of it. I think there have been too stubborn in terms of uh, breaking out the puck in. Uh, trying to force it into lanes where they're getting picked off or you're leading to, you're just making things harder on yourself. And I think it even translates towards the checking game up front where um, after the Rangers game, I think Charlie Coyle kind of put it best where like you, you look at that team, you know, the the high end skill they have with guys like Pasternak that um, usually are the ones generating all those chances. But 
you know, they should be generating those after an extended stretch of like possessing the puck. It shouldn't be one and done. They're not a team that's going to get most of their chances off the rush or really, you know, highlight real plays. It's usually, it's like a guy is setting up the opposing team's really tired after a long shift. You're holding on to the puck and you find those pockets of soft ice where you can capitalize. Like that's how the Bruins should be, you know, generating offense. And as a result, even if you're not, you know, getting those looks, if you're on the rush and you have a low danger shot, the team recovers it quickly and pushes it down the other end of the ice. You're all of a sudden getting into foot races. You're getting into odd man rushes and it's just making things tougher for your goalies and your defense to really kind of recover in time. So it's a little bit of uh, a little bit of everything, right? In terms of the, the finer details of the breakout, the four checking game has left a lot to be desired. So if you can just tighten things up in all those areas, it's not like there's one glaring issue. It's just doing the little things that when you put them all together and you start rolling leads to just a, a stronger, more, you know, predictable de- defense out there as opposed to maybe more of a run and gun thing that you've seen so far. Gotcha. All right. So we talked about Patra before the season. We talked about him a little bit at the top here, but Patra and Johnny Beecher, what have you made of those two young guys? Like Beecher for a rookie is like unbelievable in the faceoff circle. Like ordinarily you don't see that. I know he's like at the size and all that, but sometimes it can take a while to get the timing down and whatnot. But what have you made of those two guys? Yeah, I think Beecher probably deserves a lot of credit. I think the the flashier uh, role goes to like Patra being maybe like the top six center men of the future. Mason Laura gets a lot of praise for being a really gifted puck moving defenseman during his recent call up. But you look at Beecher and for a rookie that is, you know, learning the the game at, you know, hockey's highest level. And all of a sudden you're out there with all these D zone draws, usually matched up against a top six player. It's not easy, especially for a guy cutting his teeth at the NHL ranks for the first time. And I think he's been their most consistent player for what his role is, right? Like, yeah. The fact that he's been so good defensively, uh, so good on on these faceoffs, limiting the amount of time the Bruins are spent in their own end. And I think the encouraging thing is you're seeing, I think, more of his offense come out. Like, th- there's a reason why the Bruins drafted him in the first round, and that's not to say that he's going to be this, you know, bottom six guy that can be a consistent 15-20 goal scorer. I'm not thinking like that, but he kind of reminds me of a guy like Sean Corrali in a way where – 6'3", a really, really gifted skater. And when he's moving his feet and is really impacting the game, he can be a two-way force out there being kind of his own cycle uh, at times. And I think you're seeing him having the makings of that kind of player. So he's been really, really strong. And I think with Patra, what stood out to me is, as expected, 19 years old, you're going to hit some lulls. You're going to hit a wall at some points where he's not impacting the game nearly as much. But I think what stood out to me for him is that even when he has those stretches, he always bounces back. He doesn't let it, you know, compound into a week, two weeks of of not really showing up at all. Even stretches where he's not producing, he's still, you know, getting those one or two grade A looks where he's passing it, finding a good seam, a good passing lane, and making things happen. And he keeps on bouncing back and fighting through the contact and the physicality at this next level. He's going to be rewarded sooner or later. So I think he's been really solid for navigating the ups and downs that we all expected he was going to go through in his first year in the NHL. Yeah, and I, I love, it's a great point on Patra. I love Beecher. I just feel like he's perfect, too, for, like, the Bruins fan base. Like, what was his first game of the season? He's getting into a fight. It's like, okay. He he knew, he knows the playbook. It's like, all right, like, get the little jitters out of the way. Like, how can I make this crowd absolutely lose it? Start a fight early on. Like, smart, smart call on his spot. Yeah, that was, that was hilarious. Okay, so um, you mentioned the Rangers. Who, they've been unbelievable. Panarin's having an awesome season. Yeah, The Red Wings got the the Bees twice, of course. They've handled the Panthers twice. The Leafs goaltending has, seems to be an issue, which has been an issue in the past. 
Carolina right now, second in the Metropolitan. Washington's kind of been like a surprise team, at least for me, the where they're at right now. I Vasilevsky, of course, missed a chunk of the season. Kucherov's having a great season for them, but sort of the hierarchy of the Eastern Conference. Where do you have the Bruins? Because it, it feels like you have the Rangers as the best team. Where do you have the B, do you have the Bees coming in right after them, or is it kind of like a mix after that? Yeah, I think probably the Bruins are number two. I think they're probably the best team right now in the uh, in the Atlantic. I think Florida is still a team that's going to be a really tough out. I think it's all going to depend for them on their goaltending and how far it can take them. But you look at their style of play of when you look at these teams like Florida or Carolina of why they're so good, especially in the playoffs, as to why they can win a couple of rounds. Relentless forward-checking pressure, punishing style of play. That adds up over a seven-game series, and they have the firepower to kind of make you pay. And I think especially defensively, um, both Carolina and Florida are, are teams that can generate a lot of offense from the blue line. We saw Bruins fans start firsthand last year, the guy like Brennan Montour, of what he can do. But you look at the same thing with Carolina, with uh, Brett Pesci and Brett Burns and a few of these other guys. I think probably Bruins number two in the East. And then right after it's probably Florida and Carolina. I just think you look at their styles of play, the evident talent they have. And the fact that I think they're battle tested at this point, I think those two teams are going to be pretty tough outs as well. Um, without also saying that Tampa Bay, very top heavy. Uh, a lot of, you know, uh, depth has been sapped from that team off of the cap space limitations, what have you. If Andre Vasilevsky is healthy, I would not put it past him to win a round or two or three when he's on like that team, their top end talent is still so good that I think the East is still going to be a, a really riveting uh, couple of brackets here when you get to the playoffs, Toronto, not buying it. Still not doing it. <laughs> I, 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 nothing has changed to, to change my opinion. I said, it's going to be the same thing. Maybe they went around uh, off of just the talent alone, which can certainly be the case, but that goaltending, the defense, the injuries, uh, the fact they threw uh, paying Ryan Reeves over a million a year when he probably shouldn't even be in the AHL at this point. Uh, I don't know what's going on there. It's the case every single season. Yeah, the Bertuzzi thing, too, is weird. Uh, Razor said that basically he thinks that's like it's just not a good fit for the team. It's like they yeah. want to play like like if he was still in the Bruins, he would still be good. Right. Like he kind of fit in with this team more so than. He fits in there. And as you mentioned, like the pod we had before the season, you said the Van Riemsdyk thing, that's sort of like the money ball approach for the Bruins. Yeah. And that's worked out like so that's why you look when you get closer to the trading deadline. I know the bees are sort of asset poor, like they traded away a lot of draft picks to try to go for a cup last year over the past few years. But I wouldn't put it past Don Sweeney to get some sort of an impact player, even though they, you know, they don't really have the most to trade. Do you think they'll make some sort of move? Yeah, I'd be very curious to see how they kind of approach whether it's do they need another defenseman, which you hope they don't really have to because the personnel is pretty solid. Just the, the play itself hasn't been there. So you have to imagine, unlike the Patriots, the Bruins will eventually sort out one of these bigger strains of theirs, <laughs> right? Uh, you know, we're not running to these same issues over and over again once we get to January and February. So you ideally don't have to relinquish a lot of draft capital, which is usually the case to get a, a defenseman. Forwards, yeah, really, really interesting to see what they do, whether they need more of a scoring punch there. And I wouldn't be surprised if they also look at the free agent market, right, where if you're looking for a forward and whether it's a guy that maybe just adds a little bit more scoring, like a, a Zach Parise, like these veteran players like that, or even if you're looking for like a Jesse Pogliarvi, who is 6'4", you know, has a potential of being a good four-checking guy. Carolina signed him last year. And I was on a podcast with uh, Ty Anderson in 98.5, and he mentioned Wayne Simmons, who – is cooked. Like Wayne Simmons is not 
probably shouldn't be an NHLer, but if you're looking for a guy you can bring in to be a tone setter, and that's maybe barbaric to look at that, but if you want him in a game or two in the playoffs and he signed for a league minimum deal, maybe, right? Like, I, Interesting. Yeah. So I wouldn't be surprised if they look at that, especially if they've already committed to the money ball approach. Maybe they they look at the bargain bin again for a aging veteran or a uh, a guy that you know could add some more stand paper to the game like Wayne Simmons. So curious to see how they kind of approach that when you get to the, the deadline and when they need to maybe add a, a player or two to this roster. All right. So most important question before we let you go here. So. I was a huge fan of bringing back the Pooh Bears last year. Like, I absolutely love those. But every time I watch a game with one of my brothers or one of my buddies, every like the approval rating of these uniforms is like 100%. Do you have the same feeling? Like, I think they they come across really good on TV. Maybe it's more of a TV thing than in person, but a lot of people like these uniforms. I think they're pretty solid. I think what this is what happens every time, though, Brian, is uh, people see, like, the mock-ups where it's just, like, on a mannequin. They're like, they, these suck. And then they see them <laughs> on the ice. It happens it happens every single time. Like, even though, like, the Pooh Bears came out, people were like, ah, this sucks. And then you see them in warm-ups. You're like, all right, I'm buying I'm buying three of them. So, like, I feel yeah. like that happens every single time. I, I, I've been impressed with them so far. I still don't like the number of stripes, which I think – it's supposed to represent like each of their Stanley Cup wins, so I get why they did it. Oh. I think it's still, I think it's still a little bit too much there. But uh, I feel like the Bruins consistently at least hit the barometer of pretty solid jerseys. Like I wouldn't buy them, but um, the my biggest gripe with the Bruins is they switch out the unique ones way too often. Like I think it was the COVID or the the post COVID year in twenty 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 one where they played the Lake Tahoe game, like the bright yellow with the old style spoke B with the, yeah. the, the screaming bear on the side, they played that and they played that for like six games. And when they had those jerseys, I'm like, bring that back into the rotation instead of thinking of new ones year in and year out. But um, are these my favorite? No, but I, I think they're pretty solid for, you know, the centennial season, having to change it up. It, you kind of know generally what the approach is going to be for this team. It's like the red wings. Like, you know what the, the yeah. color scheme is generally going to be. You're not going to go deviate. You're not going to have the neon green like the Dallas Stars have or anything like that. Um, but I think they've done a pretty solid job this year. Yeah, I'd agree. Was that Lake Tahoe game, Was what, did it get delayed, if I remember correctly? Or was that a different it, it game? It did. Uh, I think it was because the, the sun was reflecting off of it. So I think there was yeah. one game that was supposed to be like in the like late, late evening, and they played in the morning or something like that. It was as expected for any of those outdoor games, especially – in Lake Tahoe in the middle of COVID uh, who could have thought that was going to go wrong. I'm, I'm still waiting for like the winter classic game that gets canceled. You know, it's happening. One of these there, the NHL is like Icarus flying too close to the sun. Like they're going to do one in like LA one of these years and it's going to like be an absolute disaster of like the ice is going to be melting. They're going to like look at the four guys and be like, no, like we, we have the best ice, you know, technology, like it, it'll be fine. And they won't be able to play it. It's going to happen one of these days and I'm waiting for it. Yeah, yeah, at some point. Although I will say this, like I, I like that the NHL does it. I thought that was cool. I wish I went last year to Fenway. Were you in the bu- were you in the building for that? Like it was awesome was. to watch on TV, but I guess the one critique that people have is like it's tough being there, right? Like it's it, tough yeah. to Yeah. The the sight lines aren't that great. Um it's I think very much more of the experience, which again, how much is the experience worth it if you're paying top dollar for it? Right. right? But I, I do think every year when they announce it, people are like, oh, here we go again. It's the same spiel. It's the same thing. If you're going there, the the views maybe aren't that great. But I think when you see a really competitive game, especially, 
it's always neat. Even when like they played at Fenway before, but um, the crowd gets into it. The game's great. They have, you know, uh, you know, shows during the, the intermission. Um, it, it, I think the spectacle of it still hits, especially if you're there and taking in, if you know what it is going into it, if it's not going to be the premier, you know, hockey viewing experience, like going to an NFL game, like it's maybe not ideal. The weather's not great, but if you're there for a worthwhile game or the spectacle of it, I think it makes it worth it. And it still kind of hits even at, you know, this stage of how long they've been rolling with it. All right. That is Connor Ryan covers the bees for Boston.com and the Boston Globe. Connor, enjoy. Well, I guess you didn't take a couple of days off. You're still working here. The Bruins had a couple of days off. I know they had practice and whatnot, but get ready for the rest of the season, man. We'll check in again and always appreciate you having you on. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Great stuff there from Connor Ryan checking in on the Bees, who are having an outstanding season. Little hiccup, they're back on track, so the Bruins are playing well. The Celtics have been great outside of that loss to the Pacers on Monday night. Some issues with this team still, like they really need Kristaps Porzingis back. You can make a really compelling argument, and I have, that he's the second most important player on the team. But nonetheless, the Seas are a wagon. The Bruins are playing unbelievable, so thankfully we have these winner teams after the season we're going through with the Patriots. But we do have a game to preview on Thursday night. We got into most of that with Andrew Filipponi. But as we do each and every week, Jamie McClellan and myself, we give you our picks for the Patriots. And after the Patriots game, we'll give you our picks for the games coming up on Sunday, which is going to be awesome. Jamie, we have a full Sunday of football where we don't have to watch oh, the Patriots, man. That'll be it's nice. going to be awesome. That'll now, be nice. We have to suffer through Thursday night. By the way, do you, let me get your take on this before we get into the game itself. Mm. Did you think it was like insulting or embarrassing that Bill was the logo they used last or the guy <laughs> they used? It was Bill and TJ Watt. Like what's more embarrassing, that or that the Patriots got flexed out of Monday night? Because let me tell you what I think about the Monday night thing. Uh-huh. This is like the first year they can do it or the second year, right? I believe it's the first year they can flex out of Monday night football, okay? Yeah. So I don't understand why people were so like, uh, like, oh, this is so embarrassing for the Patriots. I was thinking to myself, like this would have happened so many times before to other teams. Yeah. It's just now that the rule changes. And secondarily, did you want to watch the Patriots on a standalone (laughs) game on Monday Night Football against the Chiefs? The whole day would have been how big of a failure the post-Brady era is and Belichick on the hot seat and all this 
we've done enough of this, right? Like, I, I don't want that to be the whole day of talking points. Like, the NFL show, I was watching it last night, the preview show. Dude, it is like three hours long. They started at like 6 p.m. And it All just day. goes. Like, uh, uh, Bob Griffin's on that show. They got like a million analysts. By the way, Robert Griffin, is he's out of his mind, man. He had, go back and on Twitter or social media and Google Robert Griffin. I think it's the LSU Ole Miss game. He, I don't even want to say it on the pod. Like this guy <laughs> says some crazy things on the broadcast, but like he's jumping into the Jacksonville pool. It's just, it's getting a little bit outlandish here. Like the previews on Monday night football. I'm a big Ryan Clark fan. I like Scott Van Pelt. Of course I like, um, Marcus Spears is pretty good too. Like Larry Fitzgerald's fine. Like I like him, but I mean the Robert Griffin the third thing. I mean this guy is over the top with some of the stuff that he says. Like he's he's tries to be like super funny on this thing. But anyway, I don't want to go on a complete digression about uh Bob Griffin here. But my point is like the whole day would have been about the embarrassing thing for the Patriots. Right. So like I really don't think that that was that like sure yeah it's embarrassing you stink so you don't play on Monday Night Football like yeah that's embarrassing. But I don't like people are making a big deal about it. I think it's. <laughs> They, and they've used the Belichick, just Belichick before to like promote games because they have no stars. So what's worse, the Monday night situation that they get flexed out or Bill, Bill and TJ Watt being the two guys? I up think there? it's I think it's neck and neck. That's a tough one. I think they're both kind of embarrassing just because, yeah, it's the first year. and They would have done this a million times if they could have. But it's against the Chiefs. But it's Pat Mahomes. Like, yeah, I, I think back in the day when we had Tom Brady, like they're never flexing that game out because he's right. the best player in the league. So. That part's tough. Like you got to be the worst team in the league. I feel like to sacrifice getting Pat Mahomes on your network. But the Bill thing, I would have said uh, before the injury, they could have put Stevenson on or something. I think he was still healthy when they had that graphic up. But yeah. at this point, I, I don't. I have no idea who you put as that as your guy. I mean, who would you pick, honestly, if you had to pick a Pat player? Uh, Demario Douglas. <laughs> we'll see if he can even play. He might yeah, not be like, playing either. Judon, it's a great point. Judon's not playing. Christian Gonzalez isn't like playing. Jabril Kendrick, Peppers? Yeah, Kendrick Bourne's not playing. Well, I don't know about Jabril Peppers. We ass. That's what he said. We ass. <laughs> I mean, he's right. They yeah. are ass. We had that conversation with James Wright. You're lucky we asked. It's like, yeah, he's, he's well, kind of right enough. on that. I still yeah. stick by what I said to James. I thought it was Bush League that they aired that after. Right. He was not the guy that was mic'd up. And look, yeah, I get it. They're true. trying They're trying to get like... um people to see this stuff on social media, right? So they're trying to get attention around it. So, like, I understand what they're doing. I just thought, I mean, it's unfair to Jabril Peppers to do something along those lines. But, yeah, the, the I just thought it was fun. I think the other the the bill being up there with T.J. Watt is funnier. You know what I mean? <laughs> David Andrews, that's who you put up there. You could put David Andrews. All right, fine. But the even prob- that, it's pretty sad no, well, you put here's, center up there. Here, here's, Jamie, here's the real problem with this. Since yeah. Mac Jones, like, Mac Jones... Like that he would stinks be funny if they this. just had Mac Jones yeah. on there. I would have liked that. He, yeah, like he is recognizable to NFL fans. But yeah. you think TJ Watt's recognizable to NFL fans. There's nobody on this Patriots yeah. roster that you could put up there and everybody would know who it was. That's why like, okay, like if Mac was good, it would make sense because Mac's recognizable, right? Even Ramondre is not really recognizable. He's not like a star in the NFL. Right. So you would have to put underneath like who it is. T.J. Watt, you don't have to do that, right? When Tom Brady was playing, you don't have to do that. Mahomes, bro, all these guys, you don't have to do that. Anybody you pick from the Patriots now that their stars are hurt, you would have to do that. So <laughs> to me, like that's why it's Bill. Yeah. Because and by the pickings. way, yeah, did you see this report from Albert Breer? Not a report. He was on NBC Sports Boston. He basically said that Bill O'Brien doesn't have full control of the offense to paraphrase what he said that like Belichick is like monitoring what he does. So it feels like he doesn't have full reign of the offense. 
Now, I think personally that's obviously coming from the O'Brien camp to look good because O'Brien's not going right. to be calling plays next year for the Patriots. I don't buy into that. I, I don't buy into that whatsoever. But not that the report is inaccurate. I just don't buy I'm into the fact that, that I feel like because remember we heard like a couple of weeks ago a rumor about, oh, could Carolina go after Bill O'Brien because he coached Bryce Young at Alabama like that. I just feel like people around Bill O'Brien are trying to put stuff out there to try to make it look like it's not his fault. And look, it's Mac's fault first, or I should say it's Bill's fault first for the personnel and all that, or Mac, yeah. I mean, Ty, however you want to do it. And Bill O'Brien comes after that. But Bill O'Brien's also been bad at his job. Like I went through this the other day. Bill O'Brien stinks. Yeah. I mean, it seemed like when, after last year, that mess, it seemed like Kraft got in the way. Like you need to hire a real offensive coordinator. I'd be surprised if there were strings attached. Like hire an offensive coordinator, but you still get to tell him what to do. Like I, I'd be surprised if Bill wanted to, no, Bill O'Brien wanted to come back into that. Yeah. And Kraft wanted Bill O'Brien. Yeah. Like that's his guy. So I'm sure that he has control. Yeah, I am. Um, I completely think that Bill O'Brien has control, and I think there is going to be this thing at the end of the season where they try to, or Bill O'Brien and people around Bill O'Brien try to make it look like he was better at his job than he was, and it was more about Mac and the personnel. Bill O'Brien stinks. You think Alabama misses <laughs> Bill also, O'Brien right now? Yeah. They're like, no, we're in the college football playoff. We're good, man. We're good. We didn't make it to the college football playoff <laughs> with you. We made it with Sarkeesian. We made it with Lane Kiffin, although Lane Kiffin did become a distraction at one point. Remember that? Like, they made it with to- Mac. Yeah. Yeah. Remember Lane Kiffin had to like, he wasn't calling plays in the college football playoff because it was a distraction. <laughs> this is after he took the Bizarre. job at, where was he before Ole Miss? Florida Atlanta, wherever he was. He went somewhere for like two years. Florida Atlanta. I forget. Yeah. I don't know. I should remember this off the top of my head, but he I zooms around. That's yeah. all right. But all right. So let's get into this game. Thanks to our friends at FanDuel, Jamie. I oh have boy. cooked up a same game parlay. Well, this is what you have to do. Like, we have a game on the Thursday night against the Steelers. They're yeah. playing Trubisky. The Patriots are playing Bailey Zappi. And as we were talking about with Pony earlier, we hope to see some Malik Cunningham in this game. This is what you have to do to make it interesting. Cook yeah. up a parlay with our friends at FanDuel. So here's what I got. Plus 313. Okay. Steelers, Steelers on the money line. Because Pony scared me a little bit th- saying this is a winnable game for the Patriots. Not that I don't think it's a winnable game. But he's really confident like the Patriots are going to win. I hope he's wrong on that. So I'm taking the Steelers on the money line. Pickens over 38 and a half receiving yards. Jalen Warren over 42 and a half rushing yards. So that's plus 313. Jalen Warren 42 and a half rushing yards. Pickens 38 and a half receiving yards. Steelers on the money line. Okay, Warren last Sunday was at 59 yards on 6.6 yards per carry. He's gone over that number 42 and a half in five straight games. I still don't know why they give Najee Harris the ball as much as they do, but they do. So they have this two-headed monster where Warren's the superior player. But the thing about Warren, he's second in the NFL in yards per carry among qualifiers. Only HN is better than him, of course, on the Dolphins. So that even if he doesn't get the necessary carries that you think he should get more than Najee right. Harris, well, if he breaks off one of these big runs for, say, 15, 17 yards, I mean, you're not halfway there, but... All you need is one big one, and then if he has a bunch of regular carries, then he's on pace to do that. And the reason I have Pickens, he's gone over this number in four of six games, that 38 and a half. He's at 17 yards per reception, as we mentioned earlier. So even if you have this inconsistent quarterback in Mitchell Trubisky, he can have a 30-yard reception, and then he needs two more receptions, and he's there. So that's the reason I went with Pickens there, just because he's their big play receiver. Warren is sort of the guy that can bust out a big run, unlike Mm -hmm. Najee Harris. So there's my parlay, plus 313, man. 
I like it. It's going to be the one thing. I'm going to be, I'm cheering for the Steelers anyway. So <laughs> yeah. I might as well put yeah, them on the, the money line and put some pickings because right. the pickings thing makes the Thornton pick look bad too. And I know Pony said earlier, pickings is sort of like an issue in terms mm-hmm. of the attitude and whatnot. But hey, that would look bad for the Patriots too if Pickens has a big game. So maybe Pickens is motivated because he didn't go to the Patriots. Well, I can't imagine he'd want to be on the Patriots at this point. But hey, I'm cheering for the Patriots to lose. I might as well put some stuff in there that aids the Steelers. Yeah, uh, why not? I think uh, yeah, I think the Steelers will probably win. If I had to pick something between the spread and the money line, I'd probably pick uh, Steelers money line. I guess the only thing I think Simmons put it out in his pod like that the Patriots basically. It was like the Chargers ran. It was basically the average one yard of carry last week against the yeah. Patriots. So they can muck things up, I guess, against a guy like Eckler. So I guess I'd be a little wary of that. But um, but the Steelers line is better than the uh-huh. fair enough. Yeah, the Chargers line. So I think that's part of the, uh, that's part of my count, or at least that's what I want to believe. Like in terms of <laughs> betting on Warren and the Steelers running game has been really good lately. Yeah, Pony was talking like they run the ball well. Their issue has been the vertical passing game. Sounds familiar, right? I, I doesn't sound familiar. I, I haven't seen that in weeks from the Patriots, which is why some of the ones I was looking at a similar idea of trying to find some props and stuff to basically make this game a little more fun while rooting against the Patriots. Um, one I thought was kind of juicy, Brian, was uh, one scoreless quarter is basically even odds where neither, neither team scores, which mm. that seems to be what the Patriots do, either for themselves and what they do to the next team. It seems like they're, they get these ugly little field goal games where no one scores a lot of points. So I thought that was pretty good value, even what odds. Was that? What was that again? What was that number? Uh, it's even odds. Minus 105. Even odds. Okay. Yeah, yeah I like that. I like so that. I, think, I mean, that we, had six, very points. Plausible. we yeah. had six points in the game last week. I think there were probably at least two quarters, if not three quarters, where no one scored last week. So, yeah, that, that one looked kind of juicy. And one, this is like neither here nor there in terms of like uh, <laughs> the reasoning. But, okay, Bailey Zappi is... His over-under for touchdowns is 0.5, so you know, if he scores a touchdown, yeah. he goes over. Exactly. He's played in five games this year, and he has zero touchdowns. So I feel like mathematically, law of probability, he's got to get one one of these days, right? Got yeah. It. So you're going over the half. I think <laughs> yeah, over the half. Of course, they don't let you touch the interceptions anymore, the Patriots quarterbacks. They don't offer those for weeks, you know? It would have bankrupted FanDuel. Trubisky's the same, right? Too isn't his over under a half yeah, a touch, it half is. a touchdown. It's like minus two hundred, but yeah, the the line is that, which is pretty sad. Though he he slings it a bit more than Zappy, but I yeah. still think Zappy. I think he's gonna get his first first prime time unders are hitting like crazy this year too. This is thirty, like that's crazy. insanely I low. Know. I think yeah. I mentioned earlier, like with Pony, it's the lowest since two thousand and eight, so it's insanely low. The other thing I would say too is, how do you feel? Or the other question I'd have, I should say, mm. is the twelve and a half. The Patriots team total. How are you feeling about that? Over or under? Points. Yeah, 12 and a half seems high for this team. I mean, they haven't done it in three weeks. They'll need like an intercept. They'll need like either a yeah. pick six or like a turnover in Pittsburgh's territory for that to happen. I will say, I mean, as much as I've said and other people have said, you know, the Patriots defense has been really good. They haven't got a lot of turnovers recently. So I don't know. Maybe they're due for pick six or something like that. But yeah, I think that that would be the only way they get over there. Plus my my zappy touchdown. There you go. That's fourteen points right there. Yeah, that's the the zappy touchdown, man. That's gonna be. <laughs> you didn't seem too enthusiastic about that. Well, He's got no. it one of these days. I just I, I I hope it doesn't happen like in the fourth quarter and the Patriots are down by like three points or four points and he does it. You know what I mean? I don't I don't want to be cheering for the Bailey zappy touchdown. No. I guess that's. 
that's part of what I was thinking in terms of that situation. Don't worry, Brian. It, it'll be like 24 zip and he'll score a garbage time touchdown. How about that? Okay, I can take that. Like, Zappy looks good in garbage time. <laughs> I thought that was happening last week or something, but instead, just, just zero points. Yeah, how about this? So the Patriots, as we mentioned that line, the total points. So if we take the under in the Patriots in terms of total points at 12 and a half, mm-hmm. and then we take the over with the Steelers, 17 and a half, that's plus 243 for a parlay. So if the yeah, Steelers- Under Patriots, over Steelers. Yeah, over 17 and a half for the Steelers, under for the Patriots is 12 and a half. That would be a plus 243 parlay. If you switch that up and you go under on both, it's plus 244. I mean, they've been playing some ugly games. I'd say under, under. And with Especially Trubisky. Especially like Thursday night, weird stuff happens. Yeah, it'll be cold. I don't know. And like unders are hitting crazy on primetime this yeah. year. Like it's right. the best season ever to be betting unders. It's kind of crazy. There aren't, there aren't any starting quarterbacks left. So yeah, that's what's happening. Oh, Brian, yeah. I, uh, Phil Pony reminded me that I completely forgot that we played the Steelers last year. Just to show you how far we've fallen since week two of last year, here's some stats that I, I was like, this is crazy. Patriots averaged 4.9 uh, yards a carry on the ground with Harris and Stevenson for 118 yards. That sounds pretty good, right? And yep. the receivers, Aguilar, 110 yards on six catches and a touchdown. He made a play that is better than any play they made this year. And Myers, nine catches for 95 yards. Do you know how we good we had it with Matt Patricia's offense? He was cooking, man. Let Matty <laughs> be cooked. Who knew? Bring back Patricia. Jesus. Yeah, Patricia was cooking, man. Yeah, that was, yeah. I think I mentioned it with Pony. That that catch was just. It was nice. It's one of the highlights, the only highlight, I think, in Nelson Aguilar's career. He, like, dunked on that dude. He's made a couple nice plays for the Ravens this year. But, um, you know, he got, he got maligned for being a bust. And then Juju just said, you know, hold my beer. Next yeah. level with him. The Aguilar thing was so, like, I remember when they signed him at the time, I'm like, who the fuck are they competing against? Like, <laughs> he was one of the first guys signed. It's like, did yeah. they just completely misread the market? And that then it's like. what they're good at. Yeah. Here's Hunter Henry. Here's John o. Smith. Judon worked out, obviously. Right. I mean, I guess Hunter Henry had the one good year his first year, but. Yeah. He hasn't given you much. John o. on the field, surprisingly. I thought he'd be hurt all the time, at least. Yeah. More victories. I guess. But <laughs> cheering for the losing. Cheering for the losing, man. Better times ahead. I think we're going to get what we were in for. Drake May. You start watching Drake May highlights yet? I'm, I'm going to start. I'm excited. I mean, we're He's, locked in now, so I got to. He had a lefty touchdown pass. I, think I actually saw that one. That was pretty cool. Yeah, it's pretty sick. All right, Jamie. Good stuff, man. Go Pats. Kind of. Yeah. Go Pats to lose. All right, we'll be back with you on Thursday. James White will be with us. If you want to leave us a voicemail as you're watching that game that I expect to be not very entertaining at all, you can leave us a voicemail, 617-396-7172. Or if you want to leave us a voicemail about the sell to the Bruins, certainly can do that. Email us at offthepike at gmail.com as well. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Cerruti for producing this podcast, and we'll chat in a couple of days. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino, LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com RG. 
in Colorado, Iowa, Kentucky, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, and Virginia. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text Next Step to 53342 in Arizona, 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut, 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas, 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana, visit mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland, visit 1800gambler.net in West Virginia, or call 1-800-522-4700 in Wyoming. Hope is here. Visit gamblinghelplinema.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support in Massachusetts or call 1-877-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY in New York.